Hello, and welcome to D-Listers of History, the podcast about interesting people you probably didn't learn about in school. My name is Mazal, and I'll be taking over as co-host. I am also Fega's wife. Today's episode is about J.D. Tothill, an entomologist who single-handedly caused the extinction of an entire species of moth. Vega and Issa spoke with Lucas Zellers about this early 20th century moth killer. What can Tothill teach us about conservation today, especially within the legacy of British colonialism? Hang tight for a really fun conversation and Issa's last regular appearance on the podcast. You could come with me. You could come with me. My name is Fega, and I am your cat disciplinarian historian. <laughs> I am Isa. I am a Jew covered in paint. Isa's <laughs> <laughs> painting a new house. Today is Lucas Zellers. Lucas Zellers, hi. Uh, hi. Yeah, <laughs> is the host, host and producer of Making a Monster. He has been playing Dungeons and Dragons since 2015 and things like it all his life. He is a graduate student and freelance writer for independent games publishers like Mage Hand Press, Courtney Campbell, Saffron Quill, and many other creators on the DMs Guild. He was also the lead writer for The Book of Extinction the new book of Creatures for Dungeons and Dragons 5th uh, edition that allows players to learn about real extinct creatures while playing D&D, which is what we're sort of talking about today is the book of the extinction. Delightful. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I think hey. knows well that I'm on a monster kick right now. So this is, uh, this is very exciting. Lisa, I made a podcast for you. <laughs> <laughs> incredible, incredible. Yeah, and I have played D and D since I think it was three five. I just remember wow. being at summer camp and hearing I was like a kid at summer camp and I heard people rolling dice <laughs> upstairs and I was like, "What's going oh, on?" And so, that's what did this it. This was back in the nineties. That's back in the nineties <laughs> when they just let us like do whatever at camp. Like in <laughs> retrospect, like thank God no one died. But <laughs> but I went upstairs and there were a couple of guys sitting around playing, rolling up characters, and. I was like, can I join you? And now in retrospect, I know that they were probably like, holy shit, she wants to join us. But at the time, <laughs> um, yeah. I was very excited to be included. Um, and I played cleric. <laughs> and I've never played a cleric since because I hate spellcasting because I'm not smart enough to keep track of all those spells. It has gotten better, I can tell you. Have we lost half of the audience yet, do you think? Uh, usually, usually when I tell people I write for Dungeons and Dragons, people either immediately turn on or off, and it's hard to tell where they're going to end up. The good thing is what I always say with something like Dungeons and Dragons or any of this, these like or similar topics, you may lose a couple listeners, but the ones that stay are <laughs> are they make their enthusiasm makes up for for anyone that that's gone. Anyone that's too stupid to uh, yeah. to to stay and listen, in my opinion, Issa's coming in with the hot takes. I um, am. I have lots of me... monster opinions. So, <laughs> well, do let me appeal to those uh, who are somewhat reluctant to continue in a conversation <laughs> yes. that features Dungeons and Dragons. Because if you if you are listening to a podcast called The Listers of History, then you should know that Dungeons and Dragons has begged, borrowed, and stolen from every mythos and uh, history and culture on the planet. So cool. it contains tail ends and pieces of things that you're going to recognize. And I think our conversation today is going to land in that space between players and histor historians. D&D, like a lot of role-playing games, has in recent years sort of come, come up against the sort of reality that they have, you know, borrowed and stolen from all, <laughs> any number of cultures for their game. And different cultures feel differently about that, depending <laughs> on what exactly was stolen or the sort of colonial history of that culture or what have you in a way that I don't entirely feel equipped to entirely go into. I just, you know, these are the things that go, come across my, my Facebook feed as a former LARPer and uh, <laughs> person. 
Uh, oh, you were deep into it. Oh, I, I wasn't even a boffer larper. I did parlor <laughs> larping, which is where you pretend oh, to be a vampire. Oh, vampire the masquerade. Parlor. Yes. Ah, <laughs> I see. I see. Still haven't played, but it's on my bucket list. It's fun. It's uh, I played Sabat mostly, but that was just because that was what was in Philadelphia, which is like the bad guys. Ah, <laughs> yes. Yes, we were... We, we were followers of Cain, of Cain and Abel. Very, it's, I can't imagine, like, we, we, we played, like, in the second floor of a um, building at Drex, on Drexel's University campus, and I can't imagine what some people must have thought about us, because <laughs> we were play-acting a cult. It was very strange. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, we're so, close uh, enough to an actual cult. That that's. I know, right? <laughs> uh, I can't imagine how difficult that must have been. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe they let us stay for as long as they did. So how did you find yourself writing about extinct animals? Yeah, so Book of Extinction was the pinnacle of about, uh, let's see, about four years of work in uh, uh, in the game. So for those who don't know, uh, when Dungeons & Dragons was rele- released its fifth edition in 2014, it came shortly thereafter with the system reference document and the open game license. And that allowed third-party creators like myself to use the core mechanics of the game and add different ideas and different things that fifth edition was missing and bring stuff forward from 3.5 back into the system. In 2018, I put my first adventure on the DMs Guild, which is a, a third... A, digital storefront for third-party and user-generated content, people bought it, which was mind-blowing to me, the fact that I could write something at this desk for this game and then people would find it valuable. And that started this like four-year career change that ended up in the my largest project to date, a bestiary of extinct animals. So extinction was something that I had had in the back of my mind for a very long time. I like to tell people that I grew up in America's Midwest on land that had less than 160 years before been tall grass prairie. And I spent, you know, I spent my I spent my formative years digging up bones and running around cornfields and just being out and in and in the world and to see it kind of, I always had this intuition that it was less cool and magical and wonderful than it had been when I was young. And the turns out the science bears that out pretty strongly. So there are hundreds and hundreds of recent extinctions that I wanted to look at. And when you are building a monster manual of the kind that role-playing games tend to use, having hundreds and hundreds of creatures to look at and examine is a great starter set. But we we wanted to do something with this book that was utterly unique to the system that is arguably too ambitious for what Dungeons & Dragons is meant to do. So we, we basically wrote two books on one side of it. It is a true and exact history of the stranger-than-fiction stories of how these animals went extinct. And on the other side, it is those same animals reimagined or improved or made more fantastic so that they can compete against the adventurous heroes and mythical monsters that populate role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons. I I, I don't even know. I I think it's so, D&D is such a great space for that because especially recently like a lot of, it's it's used for education a lot my my sister used to be a teen librarian still is a teen librarian um and she like would run D games and it teaches all kinds of stuff people usually focus on the math but that's like <laughs> yeah there was more of that before but when it simplified the math fifth edition also made itself more accessible and over the last yeah nine or ten years since uh, since this edition has come out. People have been using it for uh, education and science communication and even therapy and teaching social skills. Like, it's become much more than it than anyone ever gave it credit for what it could be. Some friends of mine are using it to teach American history with a project called Nations and Canons. Uh, and I like to think that I'm kind of leading the vanguard of using this this model, this way of teaching, this 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 language. Uh, an, ex- an experiential method of play for conservation, which I think is frankly uh, one of the things to which it is best suited. The Monster Manual I, has always been a part of it. And I know having DM'd like 
a big part of what I would do is just flip through the monster manual, <laughs> looking for like, okay, I need something that's va- kind of vaguely at this level. And being able to do that and learn about extinct species is like really a cool thing. I'll hold you above me, so if you can trust me. So today our person is a guy named John Douglas Totville, because one of the animals in your book is, I'm going to say this wrong, the Levuana moth? That's how I pronounce it. Uh, Then again, I'm not Fijian. Um, After a while in my notes, I started calling it coconut moth because I found that it was called that (laughs) in some circles. And I was like, great, awesome. What I loved about this when you suggested this guy is that I recently talked to an entomologist for a not entomologist related thing for an article I wrote for Atlas Obscura. And because he was an entomologist, he told me so much, so much about bugs. Um, And it was actually really interesting. I it, it's made me want to write about them. So I was really excited to dive in a little bit. I think it gave me some perspective. So Totville, Tot Hill, Totville. I think I wrote it two different ways in this. That's great. <laughs> I've got it could, with an H. Could, okay, great. That's that's right. Um, <laughs> Tot Hill was born in England <laughs> in 1888. Didn't really find a whole lot of information about his younger years besides the fact that he went to Blundell's school, which does tell us a little bit about how he probably grew up. Blundell's is an independent co-educational boarding and day school in the English public school tradition. It's located in Devon. And this is public school in the United States comes with these implications of being kind of like the cheap option. And it is 100% the opposite in the UK. Like if you go to public school, you are fancy. (laughs) Like, you know, if you're not a member of the aristocracy, you are very wealthy. (laughs) But does it does it mean a different thing, public school in the UK? Yes, it means that free. anyone is not free and anyone right. can come regardless of where you live. Okay, got it. Yeah. So like this school, for example, this year, the full boarding fees, so this is like if you come as a boarding school student, are £38,985 a year, which comes out to about $48,452. Jeez. So not a cheap place really? to send your child. Yeah. And honestly, it's probably more accessible now than it's ever been because I think there's been a movement to make these places a little more diverse. But so that but back in, you know, the early 20th century that would have absolutely not been the case. And so he would have, you know, been around a certain set of, <laughs> of British society. And then he so he finishes uh, grade school. He continues his education in Canada. He attends the Ontario Agricultural College, which is also called University of Gulf, and graduated honors in biology in 1910. He was described by the school newspaper after the fact as a, quote, a sturdy, athletic-looking, self-reliant, genial young Englishman, fond of music and entomology, but taking an active part also in other sides of college life. Which I think (laughs) means he was a party animal. (laughs) Wow. So he was smart, but he went to the frat parties. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he had just written his book about his time in Fiji. That's what the so they were very excited about having this very Uh, important alumnus. He went to graduate school at Cornell and Harvard, eventually got his doctorate in science, which is a postdoc degree. I really struggled to figure out what, if any, difference there was between a PhD and a doc side, but um it, it seems to be very like context based yeah odds are good that's going to be set by the institution to just like whatever harvard thinks that and uh, now i'm talking about stuff i don't know about either (laughs) yeah so i did a little research and i found out that it depends but it's good it's it's a doctorate he he did he did a thing um so yeah so he got that from harvard in 1922 And while he was at Cornell, he met and married his wife, Ruby Beatrice Hughes, a fellow entomology graduate student. She was a member of the Cornell chapter Sigma Sigma Chi, a science research honor society where in 1915, she is listed as researching local distribution as studied by the tent trap method. All subsequent references I found to her referred to her occupation as, quote, unpaid domestic duties. Uh, she traveled around the world with him, and they had four kids. And I wanted to mention her, first of all, because I stumbled across her, and that made me happy. But <laughs> it's just, it would have been unusual, I think, for a woman to be getting a graduate degree in entomology back in those days, but very typical for her to then not join the workforce, which I think is worth pointing out. Um, but she she was with him. Like, she didn't, like, stay home and 
She probably, I'm sure she helped, I would hope. Yeah, I mean, this guy moved his whole family around when he got all these different postings. So, and, and no, no family, no family works without that kind of domestic partner. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I don't mean to be cliche, but it may be tr- the cliche in Todd Hill's case may be true that behind every great man is a great woman. Maybe like it's, I couldn't I, I didn't do a deep search, but all I could find about her was this her listing in this Cornell chapter of Sigma Chi. Yeah, good for her. I also was excited about the tent trap method because that's what my entomologist buddy showed me. He has a tent <laughs> trap set up. <laughs> And I was I was blown away by the fact that entomologists count how many bugs are in a place by killing them because that's literally what happens with a tent trap. But I guess when there's like a lot of them, it's fine. So he briefly worked in the United States with the Bureau of Entomology studying the spongy moth. Uh, its Latin name is Lamontria dispar, which is an invasive species. He then ended up in New Brunswick, Canada where he's credited with putting the forestry department on a more scientifically sound path. We actually, Issa and I learned a little bit about this sort of era of forestry a while ago. His book, <laughs> his book was, uh, this line was made for you and me, and it was about the founding of the forestry service in the United States. And forestry was kind of new in the in North America at the time. And so they were using yeah. a lot of information from Europe. Sawhill's whole thing is invasive species at this point. So he's looking at the spongy moth as well as the brown tail moth, forest tent caterpillar, fall web, web worm, and all these guys. But it's 1924, he gets the job that would bring him to our attention today. And pretty much the attention of history, as we were discussing off pod, it was a little bit of a, it was fun for me, but it was a little bit of a challenge to find documentary information about him. Because basically everything was like, he, he sort of like emerged fully formed in Fiji. Uh, so he got a job with the British colonial office and they sent him to Fiji to fight the coconut moth, also known as Luvania iridenskins. So, so here we are, we've arrived in Fiji. Um, so why do we care about this moth? What's, yeah, what's so the deal this... with this moth? <laughs> Levawana iridescens is commonly held up as one of the best examples of biological control. So often when you're dealing with an invasive species, the answer might be bring in another species to fight that one, and then you'll end up with a sum total of zero invasive species as they kind of eat each other out. And that benign vision almost never goes to plan, except for this one time when it kind of did, or when people generally agree that it did, despite a certain amount of controversy that continues to this day. So this is one of the first times that we deliberately drove an animal to extinction on purpose through the method of biological control. And we're still studying, biologists and entomologists, I should say, are still studying this as a case study today. And they're fighting about it bitterly, I discovered. Yeah. (laughs) People have really strong opinions about this. Um, And they didn't start with biological control. They tried a bunch of other stuff first. Coconut moth eats coconuts, essentially. It actually is a little more complex than that. But uh, they're a critical crop to the culture and economy of the Fijians. They make something called copra, which is made from drying the coconut flesh and is used in the production of coconut oil. And it was also a key part of the diet for the indigenous people of Fiji. Yeah, I don't know if you've switched to coconut milk recently, but like you can live on a coconut. It's buck wild. These things are incredible. Oh, yeah. My wife is all about the coconut water. <laughs> I do not care for it. I have tried. Um, but it's like natural Gatorade. <laughs> Basically. I mean, yeah. the fact that not a lot else grows on the island is immaterial when what does grow is something that you can make basically everything out of. And these moths were just decimating the coconut groves. And this, beca- this what, what I think is also an important thing to note with the, um, the dynamics here is that the British colonial office did not care about coconuts for themselves. They cared about sugar. After World War I, there was a lot of concern like that the British colonial office wasn't sufficiently concerned with the well-being of the people who lived in the colonies because the people who lived in the colonies were 
expressing that they were unhappy with being part of the British Empire. And so there was this little bit of a push to be like, okay, well, let's do things that are good for all the people. And so coconut moths. (laughs) (laughs) Man, I I didn't get that this was a uh, that this was a PR stunt, but I imagine it. I mean, I wouldn't go as far as to call it a PR stunt, but I mean, two things can be true. (laughs) Yeah, because they were genuinely doing something that was helpful in this particular case. But it was definitely because they didn't want people to revolt and ask for their independence from the British Empire. Like there was a there was a reason. They were doing this. But I I love all the various things they tried. One that's very near and dear to my heart as a Philadelphian is they put out, they they tried a cultural control strategy that involved putting out wanted posters for coconut moths. They had like pictures of them on it. And there was like some sort of like, if you brought like a dead coconut moth, you'd get money or something. And I, I, I love this because here in Philly, we just went through a pretty successful cultural control strategy. For the invasive species, the spotted lanternfly. It was very <laughs> successful. It was very successful because Philadelphians, if you tell Philadelphians to kill something, we're going to do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lucas, have you heard about this lanternfly scenario? I, I am shocked and embarrassed to admit that I have not. Oh, my goodness. This, is, this was the talk of the town for... <laughs> Several for, a, for several years, which was if you see <laughs> one of these things, and they're very distinct looking, they're like big, they're very pretty and they're polka dots, and I don't like their look that much. They bother me, <laughs> so I'm happy to kill them. Um, and any the entire city just created war. Yeah, it was a crusade against the lanternflies, and it was very successful. Well, we were told, and this is true, that they kill trees, and they also like to eat hops. So that would impact oh, oh no. production. And so Philadelphians were like, okay, you want us to kill these things? We're going to do it. <laughs> and it's not that they're gone entirely, but like that first summer, it was honestly a little unsettling. It was like, it was like a Hitchcock movie with these things. There were now, so many of them. Yeah. They were, it was really freaky. We wanted them gone and it was easy to, to convince us <laughs> to, to murder. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, it took me an, another embarrassingly long time to do was to read the text of the Endangered Species Act. And there is the only provision for not implementing this is in the case of pest insects and like specifically insects. Uh, so even in the most powerful conservation and preservation legislation that exists in the world, space is made for insects that, that endanger crops. Especially when they're not endemic to the area, which is one of the debates about the coconut moth. Yeah. Was it really native to Levuana Island? Yeah. And Tothill thought, no. One of the things I found of the my favorite type of arguing, which is uh, academics. Yes. Reviewed, um, <laughs> articles. Are we doing, are we doing academic other. sass? I love this so much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always here to sass academics. Um, <laughs> like, let me on JSTOR. Um, but <laughs> just the amount of like back and forth of it was endemic. It wasn't endemic. This Todd Hill was an idiot. How could he think it was, was endemic? Or Todd Hill was a genius. <laughs> Everybody's still arguing about this guy. They also tried quarantining and traps, and just nothing was working. It kept spreading. And so that's where Todd Hill comes in. One thing that was sort of interesting about reading the little snippets I got of Todd Hill's work, so we just talked about before, get it, you can't get your hands on this book that he wrote um, about (laughs) his time in Fiji unless you're willing to spend an absolutely absurd amount of money. But I read little clips that were just in other places. And I thought it was sort of interesting given who Todd Hill was and the time and place in which he lived, how much he seemed to really genuinely care for the Fijians and the preservation of their way of life. And of course, it was in a very, you know, paternalistic way because it was 1924 and he was a white British dude. But he seemed to really like he cared, like he thought this was important and this was worth doing some pretty extraordinary things to make happen. And I, I think that's that's notable enough to mention. So he did a whole lot. He found this parasite that would that like would eat a similar type of moth somewhere else. Yeah, I have the names for this, I think. 
Uh, yeah, I decided I didn't care that much. About uh-huh. the <laughs> so I've got enough Latin in this as it is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Artona Catazantha in the Malay Archipelago. And so you were you said that he went over what was it um, a third of the world's surface. Yeah, his, yeah. <laughs> this is one of the reasons. One of the reasons that Todd Hill's story sticks with me so much is that in this entire career of globe trotting entomology, there is a uh, two week voyage that covers about a quarter of the Earth's circumference, and it is utterly improbable and the kind of thing that I really wish someone would make a movie about. The whole thing must have been from start to finish tense and impossibly uh tense and seemingly impossible yeah so he had to figure out how to get these how to get these parasites to fiji and so was it like they had little baby palm trees in like coffee cans or something yeah let me let me get some of the descriptions here so uh you have to go to uh to the malay archipelago and you got to get uh you have to find a tiny fly that lives that burrows into the body of a similar moth and then lays its eggs in there, and then the the creatures hatch, and that like eliminates Artona catazantha. And they're like, we can do this with le- the Levawana moth, and that will solve the problem. What you have to do then is go and find moths in Malay that have that have been parasitized, and then carry them living through like to Fiji. At some point, I did see a picture of this. They used petrol cans. And put palm fronds or, or palm seedlings into these petrol cans and then built this cage over them. And they had a bunch of these that they just like carried around. So like a, a gas can with a tree in it and in the gas can on the tree, on the tree in the gas can. Sorry, let me go. Let me go from the other direction. There's a there's a bug on the there's a fly in the moth in the tree <laughs> in the gas can. And they put all these gas cans on two trains and a boat and take him a quarter of the way across the world. This this sounds like that. What's that song? Like, <laughs> I was sitting here trying to remember it too. The rattling vlog frog. Oh, Deshanna. Oh, Deshanna. Oh, Deshanna. Bugs <laughs> all the way down. <laughs> um, you can't yeah, make this and stuff I, up. That's awesome. I had this mental image when you first emailed me this story of him having like a little like gas can with a d- tiny palm tree in it like next to him like strapped in next to him on the train which is absolutely not how that happened i mean maybe but picture <laughs> like a picture like a pallet of gas cans and you're you're pretty much on it right like, this should um, not have worked this is this is unreasonable <laughs> and he did it and he did it like he didn't send somebody else to do it like he was like and then they had to put them all in quarantine to make sure like there was nothing else there and that they actually did what they thought it was going to do, which it did. There's a couple of steps in the process, and I think I can. I think I've got a, a book that can lay them out for you. It wasn't just Todd Hill; he had a had a team with him. They collected. They go to Malay. They they make 17 carefully designed one and a half meter tall cages open to the air. They collect a tremendous number of caterpillars. Put these caterpillars in the cages. They go from Malay to Singapore on the Clan McKay, and they get on another ship of the line, the can, Clan Matheson, going to Fiji. So when they get there, they're halfway there, and only a portion of the insects are survived, and more are being lost each day. So there's a ticking clock on the gas can as the number of caterpillars in it goes down. And they have to have a breeding population by the time they get to Levawana, or it's not going to work. They have to start over. So they get, even when they get there, they have 315 flies left, which seems like a big number, but in, I guess in the fly world, that's not a lot. So they they have it there. They're not even sure it's going to work. They have to make sure that the analogy holds, that this, this parasite for a similar moth will parasitize the Levawana moth. That works. And then they have to be able to release them into the wild. And then they have to make sure that that actually happens outside of a controlled environment. And then even after that happens, they have to make sure that it will stay. So if will there still be Bessa remota flies in Fiji the next time there are Levawana moths? So summer of 1925, they 
almost completely eliminate Levuana iridescens. And then in March of 1926, there's a new outbreak, and almost immediately, Bessaramoda, the fly, does its work on the Levuana caterpillars. And uh, by the end of 1926, the Levuana moth is so scarce as to be virtually undetectable. Yeah, and then the official date I saw was 1929, I think, because like they were like, okay, it's done. But there's there's <laughs> there's drama here too because they like opened up somebody like opened a like a drawer somewhere and found Levuana moth from like 1956, and so now there's this debate about is it actually extinct? But nobody's <laughs> like seen one since 1956. I said so that said one thing I learned about with my from my entomologist friend was that with bugs we like don't know what most of them are. Like he he was telling me that he's got like hundreds of samples that he can't identify, and they're just like yeah, there's a bunch of bugs we haven't given names to yet. And I'm like oh, we're just chill with that, okay? So I. Who knows? It could be out there somewhere and just nobody's caught it. Yeah. And that's the trouble. That's one of the major troubles with extinction is that evidence, uh, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And especially in the case of insects, they're so small and so difficult to distinguish that it could be there. And, And we might even know even if we got to the improbable, through the improbable task of finding one. There was a, a a Duke water beetle, one of the largest water beetles in the water beetles in the world, Megadites ducalis, which had been assumed lost completely until someone opened a drawer in the Smithsonian and found one of those with a label on it that said where it was from, so they could actually go and check. This is like the story of how entomology goes, especially as it over over intersects with extinction. Yeah, entomology is wild. Like they. <laughs> They, they just have to deal with things that nobody else does. Like, you know, you can look around, like, is there a tiger? It's pretty easy to see. Is there a tiger here? Not so easy with a moth. So yeah, it's successful. And there's been some debate about whether there's been negative impact from the parasite, which is seems to also be hotly debated amongst entomologists. So if you're interested in this, like, just hop on to like Sci-Hub and type in Levuana <laughs> moth and yeah. you'll, you'll get a... <laughs> A lot of a lot of uh, academic argument, but this is obviously very good for Tothill's career. Becomes the director of agriculture or whatever it was in Fiji, um, and then he gets sent to Uganda to be the director of agriculture there. What was really interesting is the the British Empire, and not just Britain, but we're 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 going after Britain right now. Uh, <laughs> was really concerned about cash crops. Like, the whole point of having a colony is to make money off of it. Like, that's why they had colonies. And so they needed a cash crop to make this a profitable venture. That was partially what Todd Hill's job was as director of agriculture. And a lot of them didn't really understand that food crops can also be cash crops. Like, you can grow food and that can be food. <laughs> and then also something that you sell, which is what the people living in these various places had been doing since time immemorial. But, you know, the British came in and were very sure that they understood better the best way to manage the land. And Tahu was definitely a part of that. So he goes to Uganda. There, before he even showed up, they tried to encourage cotton growth, which wasn't particularly successful because in Uganda there wasn't a plantation system in place and the farmers were kind of reticent to put their food crops at risk understandably. And so Tothill suggested that coffee would be a better a better crop in Uganda, but unfortunately it uh, was doomed by another pest called the Entestia. And also this focus on cash crops caused huge issues in soil erosion, which became a very central focus for Tothill while he was there. And he he actually himself noted that the issue with the soil erosion was because of the cash crops. This is a quote from him. The system of agriculture developed by the indigenous population in Uganda was excellent from a soil fertility point of view. With the rise of population, the increase of food crops, of cash crops, and of cattle, serious strains are being put upon that the old system, and there is proof that soils in some parts of the protectorate are losing their fertility. The old system requires to be modified. Now, this is, of course, like I say, is a t- guy at a time and a place because I'm like, seems like maybe the old system was working before you started tinkering <laughs> with it. But sure, okay, that's that's the problem. Reading his stuff, it's like, man, you're almost there. Like you're so close to getting it. Yeah, and that there's a problem with this. So close. But he's, you know, part of he's part of the colonial system. 
And he is a really smart guy and probably knows some things that are useful to people. He then, in 1939, becomes director of agriculture and forests in Sudan. He tried, this one was like particularly infuriating. In Sudan, he tried to implement a whole bunch of different cash crops in the Zandi region in southern Sudan, especially cotton. But he thought that the focus needed to be on education and the use of as many domestic supplies and labor and knowledge, etc., as possible. Like the idea was the British would come in with with the resources to create these cash crops, but people there would would do everything else. Like they would come in with education and he, he thought there needed to be like state of the art facilities um, for for ginning. So it's like separating the cotton from the from the seeds. And he's like, you know, this needs to come from the Azande who are the, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. I apologize if I am, or the indigenous peoples of that region. It's like, he's like, this needs to be their project or it's going to fail. Unfortunately, in 1944, he falls ill. And while he was out of commission, the, the rest of the, I guess, British Department of Agriculture, or whatever, gets rid of everything that isn't just put cotton in the ground and <laughs> take it back so like they remove all the social and modernizing elements they got rid of the partnership with the indigenous population everything there is this idea that Todd Hill's social programs were inefficient which of course now we understand is backwards right like that yeah there was there has been this shift from the early 20th century focus on efficiency to a more 21st century focus on sustainability as we've recognized that we reach the limits of an ecosystem's carrying capacity or the things that it can do indefinitely. Wow, man, I'm really glad my guy Todd Hill was uh, ahead of the curve on that. Yeah, like, uh, you know, if somebody wants to go in and find lots of gotchas of things he wrote, there's plenty. Sure. If for no other reason than he was writing with, especially writing with the language of the era. But he, you know, he was definitely ahead on a few things. He was... Like, I don't think he would be entirely out of place in today's sort of biological world. And, you know, that was that was his last uh, globetrotting time. He retired in Scotland, where he spent oh, the rest of, of his life. <laughs> I <Yes>. would, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, let's go someplace where bugs cannot live. Because <laughs> it's in Scotland, but I remember being struck by that in Iceland. People were like, you have so many bugs in America. I'm like, we really don't. And it's like, well, if it's compared to like none, <laughs> or, I guess there's a lot. Because <laughs> I look at Australia and I'm like, we got nothing. Yeah, no, they, they have just like the American South. Situation. I'm like, nope, I live where the air hurts my face so that I do not have <laughs> flying cockroaches in my house. <laughs> this is fine. <laughs> My question here would be like, how do we treat historical figures like Todd Hill, who definitely meant well, but were part of these systems that we now recognize are not great? And this comes up, I think, a lot in, in conservation as well, because, you know, we have all these famous examples of this not going right. Like this is the one time it potentially went right. But everybody likes to talk about the the bunnies in Australia. Yeah. Who are, are a, a a pest at this point. And there's other examples that I can't think of now, but where European colonizers have introduced species in hopes of controlling some other species and it's gone horribly awry. So how do we like, I guess, look at these guys who nobody was going around like cackling and saying, ha ha, we're going to cause the extinction of an entire species. Yeah. But they did. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm open to hearing your guys' answer. I have one of my own, uh, but, but I'd, love to, I'd love to hear how it compares. I mean, I am... I'm dealing with a lot of people in history who are complicated <laughs> all the time. History is complicated. People are complicated. And I think that you can hold more than one truth at once. Todd Hill's an easy one for that, right? Because you can actually really see where he was trying to do the right thing. And I can criticize his just the fact that he was like in this colonial system while at the same time recognizing that like if he wanted to make things better in places like Uganda and Sudan, sitting at home and criticizing the empire wasn't going to do anything. And he really did try to do things in the way that we now today see as being certainly closer to the right way 
than what his compatriots were doing. But we can hold both these things at the same time, right? I feel like I can say, like, yeah, he was part of this colonial system that was really damaging to these places. Like, he caused all these issues with soil erosion in Uganda. And how do we feel about the fact that this moth is now extinct, probably? <laughs> like, I, I guess it's good for the coconuts. I think I can hold both those things, that he was seemed like a generally good dude who maybe caused some pretty bad stuff being part of this system. Yeah. And there That's were... my opinion on it. <laughs> Yeah, there were people who got it way more wrong than Tothill did while trying to get to the same results. So from, I mean, Book of Extinction contains north of 70, I think, I think 86 was the, was the last count, uh, stories almost exactly like this. And the common thread, the common threads seemed to be over-exploitation and a misunderstanding of the ecosystem by people in power. But and and so from that you get you get I have a very short list of like actual factual bad guys from yeah. conservation history and Tothill isn't on it and even in the case of most of those guys like the my my three actual factual bad guys are the people who knew better and made the wrong choice anyway but for most of the most of conservation history the bell curve holds true that you have people on the on either extreme, people like Todd Hill who got it as right as they possibly could, people who got it as wrong as they possibly could. But most of the time, it was people operating off of the best assumptions of their day. And there's a couple, there's a couple assumptions that I have to point out because they happened far too late, it seems. So first of all, yeah. the idea of extinction didn't really exist until 1796. Before then, we had this idea that anything that had existed might must still exist somewhere else and even if it were lost it would be in the service of a better greater version or the introduction of a new species kind of like that this idea of the balance of nature and it wasn't until they dug up mastodon teeth along the ohio river and shipped them back to france and finally the entire scientific community said we these aren't anything there's nothing anywhere we can confidently say there's nothing in the world that is quite like this, that we got the idea of uh, Especie Pardue, which, again, pardon my French, but Georges Cuvier's idea of lost species. It was like these, mm -hmm. and that was 1796. And Thomas Jefferson commissioned uh, Lewis and Clark to go and find it. So for, for an alarmingly long amount of time, we just assumed that extinction was impossible. I had no, that makes so much sense, but I had no idea. Like, <laughs> most people don't it's something we just take for granted now like yeah, yeah it's the go i mean what is one of the like if you i mean especially growing up the way i did one of the first things i learned about was dinosaurs because dinosaurs yep. will always be cool and they are yep. made out of plastic and we know that we will never see them again we we take the idea of extinction for granted now so i like i, I like to look at people like todd hill with a certain amount of grace to say that, man, you just, you just didn't know. The flip side of that, of course, is that we do know better now, and it is our responsibility to make different choices. Very much so. Are there any other assumptions that, I mean, just, I, I'm still kind of blown away with the fact that we didn't know that extinction was a thing. Um, I mean, it makes yeah. sense, but it's just- Yeah, that is those... so interesting. Yeah. I... Like, I guess it's also, it's almost like goes along with this, the creationist kind of idea where it's like, all of these animals have always existed. And <laughs> that since the beginning of time. Um, Man was hanging out with yeah. dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. The su superabundance and the balance of nature were kind of that yin yang for what has been will always be. And and in fact, to say that, to say that a species, to say that human intervention could alter the world to that extent must have been must have seemed an affront to the idea of of an all-powerful god for whom you know and and where humans fit in the order of, of creation and yeah. like we have that's been those those have been two of the most difficult things to reckon with while i've been working through the book of extinction because i think we still have remnants of this idea of superabundance that there will always be a better iphone uh, or we will always be able to find more copper, or there will always be another natural gas reserve that we can tap. And we have to grapple with the idea that we may be in the part of history that is at the end of that. And then the question becomes, 
how now shall we live? Yeah, and I think that's where we see a lot of Gen Alpha's frustration. They're being very <laughs> delightfully noisy about. And they're doing some really cool things, like a bunch of kids from one of the Dakotas just won a lawsuit against the state for climate change, basically. It's a little more specific than that because of course our judicial system doesn't do big broad things has to be <laughs> yeah i think that's right and especially this it's actually interesting because this you know it's this capitalist idea right of like eternal growth montana they sued montana uh <laughs> violating younger res- residents right to clean and healthful climate okay i was looking for something that would tell me a little quicker what was going on but one of them has purple hair so that's pretty cool <laughs> That's yeah, that's um, a qualification. <laughs> I, but anyway, my point of that was I think that that is a key. I don't think it's necessarily generational. You know, for, for a lot of these kids, this is very real. There's only so much of this stuff. And for a lot of folks who grew up in a time of abundance, like even I'd say even people our age where it's like, yeah, we we're supposed to recycle and protect the earth and stuff. But I don't know. I think I always had some faith we'd figure it out. And now I'm almost 40 and i'm like oh no no we did not well we haven't figured it out yet uh yes the other thing that extinction is well and i should the other thing that book of extinction is about is the audacity of hope i got the chance to talk to john r platt who is a uh, environmental journalist and has been covering extinction specifically for i think 10 to 15 years at this point the bulk of his professional career and he described it as staring into the sun just unblinking in the face of something that's incredibly painful to deal with uh and you can't like you can't end there i i I refuse to accept the idea that that hope no longer applies and i i think i'm going to keep pursuing it book of extinction is one solution to that i think because it is able to give people the chance to encounter creatures like this and have a sort of meaningful personal Mm -hmm. interaction like a very memorable semi-real in a really important way experience with creatures that they would never otherwise be able to encounter. That's how Darwin got started. That's how Leopold got started. That's how Rosalie Edge and William Hornaday and the the luminaries of conservation in our era all began with this, like some encounter with nature in their formative years. So for for me, putting this book together was to be able to say, hey, I'm going to give you the tools to do that. I think D&D is really, really good at doing that. And if we do it on purpose, then I think this is starting to work against that sliding scale of being born into a world with fewer and fewer fellow creatures in it. Yeah, I really like that. And I also just want to, like, on that audacity of hope, um, one thing that I don't think gets mentioned enough, and I understand why it's not mentioned, because uh, climate scientists are trying to ring the alarm bells you know, and so the extreme is the way to go. But just because, like, I think we've reached some sort of benchmark or we're going to reach some sort of benchmark soon that there's, like, we can't go back to a pre-industrialized Earth. Like, that's not, like, even if we stopped everything today, that just isn't a possibility. But that doesn't mean we can't make the future better than, like, it's not like you don't just throw it all away and say, yeah, well. it's not all or nothing. It can't be perfect. I guess we give up and just, <laughs> like burn lead I don't know, like, <laughs> yeah. um, you know and yeah. I think that's important it's important to remember because it's easy to get really overwhelmed and depressed by this stuff you wrote an entire book about it <laughs> yes. I think I've been like I've written most of the book in the square footage in which I'm recording this interview and I think I've been through in this square footage all five stages of grief at this point and I think I've I think I've come to acceptance but yeah it hurts it wasn't easy I I've laughed I've cried I've been so on I've been I've, I've seen white at how angry I've been about this. And I hope that I can like, and especially, I, I, you know, especially even talking about people like Todd Hill, I hope one of the things that this does is get you to that, that last stage faster, yes. <laughs> maybe without hurting as much as we did. Well, thank you so much. Plug all your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, 
Feige and Issa, thank you so much for having me. This was a fantastic experience. Uh, I'm really pleased to be on a show where uh, I don't have to do the heavy lifting and the research because I've been that guy for three years and this was a breath of fresh air. But if you want to <laughs> learn more about Book of Extinction, if this resonates with you, if you if you agree that it can do what I think it can do for you, uh, then you can check it out at magehandpress.com slash extinction. We brought it to Kickstarter in uh, uh, in early this year, and it made it made enough that the book is going to be real. So it's not in hardcover at time of recording, but you can still pre-order it. And when you do, you'll get the most current build of the book in PDF. There are over 120 monsters that you can put into your game immediately uh, and begin to have those encounters and deal with these situations and these stories in your own way. And if you want to hear more about that and see how that process is coming together, you can follow me. I think at this point, the best place is Instagram uh, until Twitter figures itself out. Uh, but I'm at Instagram.com slash Spark Otter. Great. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. I, and also just this was fascinating. Pe people <laughs> listening at home, pre-orders are super important. Yes. <laughs> uh, so if you're thinking about it, and you'll probably end up doing it. <laughs> Go ahead and just do it. Um, because it makes a big big difference. Yeah, it really does. Thank you so much for listening to D-Listers of History. If you enjoyed yourself, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform you listen on. We're now a weekly podcast. The weeks between our big episodes will release sidebars, short episodes exploring the relevant history of current events. Our next big episode will drop Monday, January 22nd. Vega will speak with author Mac Little about the power of organizing and solidarity during the 17th century slave revolts in Barbados. D-Listers of History is a member of the World Podcast Network. Head over to nycpodcastnetwork.com, that's all one word, and give this episode a like to help our ranking. Go to our show notes for links to our social media pages and our website. We would love to chat with you. A big thank you to our Patreon members. We couldn't do this without your wonderful help and encouragement. And now for an episode-relevant audio drop. Is das nicht ein Hochzeitring? Und ist das nicht ein helges Ding? Das ist ein helges Ding. Helges Ding.